This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Whipping Boy, That Petrol Emotion, The Fatima Mansions, Into Paradise, The Shanks, Nina Hines and many, many more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider liking, subscribing and sharing. Now, this is a bonus episode before normal service resumes on this podcast in a few weeks' time. Dave Hackett presents Keeping Track on UCC 98.3 FM. That's the community radio station in UCC. He describes his show as an alternative music and interview show. Dave contacted me a couple of months ago and he asked if I'd be a guest on his programme. I recognised Dave's name. I replied to him asking, are you the Dave Hackett that played in Stanley Super 800, the great Cork band? It turned out I had the right Dave. I went back and listened to a couple of episodes. Dave's a great presenter and a great interviewer. I was in. I was only too happy to contribute and we eventually got it done there sometime. I think it was back in June we got the interview done. Dave has had some really interesting guests on his programme. I highly encourage you to go away and subscribe to Keeping Track. And uh, I'd also highly recommend the following recent episodes that Dave has done. Episode 24 of his programme, he interviews Kieran Hurley. Kieran is the former station manager of UCC 98.3 FM, formerly Core Campus Radio. He was there for 27 years. He talks all about working as a live sound engineer before he got started in community radio. Kieran's an old friend. He gave me my start in broadcasting and he commissioned a couple of my radio documentaries. It's a great interview. Episode 23 Dave chats to John DeWire. John runs a record shop in Cork called Bunker Vinyl, one of the best record shops in the country, I hasten to add. And John chats to Dave all about the 20 years he spent in London working in social care before eventually returning to Ireland and setting up a record shop. Episode 17 has Virginia O'Gara. Virginia is the co-owner of the hugely popular raw vegan food company, My Goodness. She comes from Texas and um, she tells Dave all about working as um, a Spanish-English interpreter for touring punk bands in Mexico before eventually becoming interested in permaculture whilst working on a farm in Guatemala. She eventually ended up in Ireland. That's a brilliant interview. So there's just a couple of recommendations of recent episodes of Keeping Track. Now, I know that I might be accused of navel-gazing here, but, you know, whatever. I'm reposting Keeping Track, episode 22. That's the one I contributed to. I think that listeners to this podcast might enjoy this interview. Dave asked me all about producing radio documentaries, my involvement with community radio. He asked all about this podcast, To Hear Knows When, how it came about, and a whole lot more. So here we go, to hear knows when, Great Irish Albums Revisited, bonus episode number four. It's my great pleasure to present Keeping Track number 22, Dave Hackett, in conversation with my good self. Hey, welcome to Keeping Track. My guest this week is a man described as a cultural historian documenting Cork's musical heritage. If you're a regular listener to UCC 98.3 FM, like me, you will have heard his excellent documentaries on Micro Disney, Stump, Andrew Weatherall and Finbar Donnelly from Five Go Down to the Sea and None Attacks. More recent offerings such as his documentary on the Sultans of Ping, which was released as a band celebrated 30 years of casual sex in the Cineplex, was aired on RTE's 2XM. And his excellent feature on the music of Sleeve Luca, which aired on RTE's Lyric FM, was described by the Irish Times as an evocative reminder of the magical role music can play in our lives. When not documenting Cork's musical heritage, he teaches radio production, journalism studies and media analysis in Ratmines College. He also broadcasts songs to learn and sing on Dublin City FM, and he also produces the number one podcast to hear knows when great Irish albums revisited. Surely it has to be Mr. Paul McDermott. How are you, Dave? <laughs> Welcome to the show. Cheers, thank you. 
Uh, while we gather our thoughts, Paul, um, let's hear the first tune from your excellent playlist that you put together for us this morning. Okay, so this is um, uh, Spring, they were called in America. Over here, they were called American Spring. It is their version of the Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys song, Falling in Love. Flowers come in the spring Oh, all the love I can bring Bring it for my baby All I can do You know, you know It's for my baby I love him so Falling in Love by American Spring and that was picked by my guest this morning Mr. Paul McDermott Paul, let's go back to the start Okay, let's go Dave uh, I think it would be fair to say that in a city the size of Cork uh, communities need people who take it upon themselves to make their city a little bit more culturally vibrant people like independent promoters and people who run venues say In your time starting out there was the Cork Music Resource Co-op people who wrote fanzines people who ran alternative music nights in clubs or bars and names that come to mind are Angela Dorgan from the Music Co-op Emma Green from Bandicoot Promotions John O'Leary and his wife Ashling and their ensemble the DJs running Indian nights in Sir Henry's. When I started going out around 1997, I completely took it for granted that these things existed. You know, I probably saw Emma Green as a civil servant who had to do that job of bringing bands from out of town into Cork. And of course there should be someone doing that, whether they wanted to do it or not. It was only when I got older I realised it was all done through people's own volition. And then I appreciated the fact that it was all individuals or a collective of individuals trying to make their city a place to live where they didn't have to look to Dublin or London as places where they might be more spiritually satisfied. You were part of all of that, Paul. Can you tell us how involved you were? Um, I started DJing in the early 90s in, um, when I was up here in UCC, actually. So it would have been 1990, 91, I suppose. And I got a DJ slot below on Isaac Bell's. That was a pub on Patrick's Quay at the back of um, the Metropole. And um, it was a friend of mine, Richard Healy, had um, a brilliant um, reggae ska night on a Saturday night. And he got me a slot on um, the Friday night. I was always in interested in music. And, and then, of course, through that, I got into DJing, kind of, you know, I'd get a few quid. We'd all be going to Henry's, and suddenly I had money to go to Henry's at the end of the night on Friday nights. There was a great night in Henry's at the time called Tight, an indie night. And I suppose through that, I, um, I got into gigs. I met a guy called um, Shane Fitzsimons, who was up here in UCC at the time. He was writing a music column in the Evening Echo and he was running gigs in the village, which was the venue underneath Sir Henry's. And, and then Shane got me a slot DJing in the village. And I suppose through that, I just started getting involved in gigs. Uh, another old friend, someone really important, um, is, is Jim Morris, who has a radio programme here as well on, on UCC 98.3. Jim used to run a print shop just off of um, the St. Mal Munster copying directly across the road from um, Father Matthew Hall. And Jim printed everyone's flyers and posters. He still does, but uh, at the time he printed everyone's gig flyers and posters. And if you were abandoned, you needed a demo tape, Jim would do the inlay card. He did ticket stubs and all that kind of thing. Jim was involved in putting an application into, it would have been false at the time, I suppose, to set up the Cork Music Resource Co-op and some of the people involved in that at the time would have been Emmett Bandicoot, Emmett Green that you mentioned earlier, um, Angela Dorgan who went on to, who still runs First Musicians Contact in Dublin, um, Murty from the Sultans was involved. If I remember correctly there was maybe 10 or 12 of us put on a FOSS scheme which kind of took you off the, uh, the dole. It was like 9 to 5 
in this co-op. Um, it was up in the, the old Thomas Bakery on McCurtain Street, Thomas House, Cork Music Resource Co-op. There was, um, as I said, about maybe 10 or 12 of us. Jim Clancy, who was the manager of a great band in Cork called The Shanks. Paul Rudden, who was the bass player with a great band called Treehouse. Alan Murphy, who had been in the How and Why Insects and a great band in the 90s called Star Child. Loads of others. And it was really, for me, it was this brilliant, it, it was this brilliant time because, you know, you were kind of um, suddenly seeing, um, I've, I've often said that if, if there had been a kind of a media course or a communications course in UCC when I was doing my CAO, I might have ended up doing that. But because there wasn't, you know, at the time, if you wanted to study journalism or media or whatever, you kind of had to go up to DIT in Dublin and do communications, which kind of wasn't even on my radar when I was in Leaving Cert, because I was into like fanzines and music, and I couldn't translate that into a career with a career guidance teacher. What do you want to do? Well, I want to write a fanzine. Would you go away? You know, stop it. You'll do commerce. That's what you'll do. Yeah. <laughs> do you know? <laughs> this kind of thing. So inevitably I dropped out of UCC after a few years of, of commerce because just, you know. So this, this Cork Music Resource Co-op, suddenly I found myself doing what I was really passionate about and I could see a route into something, you know. Yeah. And was that set up by FOSS? It was funded by FOSS and it was set up by Angela and Jim Morrish and, and Shane Fitzsimons and Murty. So and were you the lucky people that got We got on it the first yeah. year on this scheme, you know, like a FOSS scheme. And did and it change every year or were we able to stay there? Yeah, after the first year it rotated. Maybe some people were kept on and another, maybe another 10 people got it the second. And I suppose out of that experience, Angela was able to kind of take, you know, the concept and then run with it nationally into this um, Arts Council funded project that she still heads up in Dublin called First Musicians Contact. Yep. That's the organisation that takes, it helps bands who want to go to South by Southwest mm. in Austin, European festivals and things like that. And it helps bands with um, tour support money if they're touring Europe, you know, loads of yep. things. It's a big information and mm. kind of consultancy really, I suppose. And she's done an amazing job with it. So when you dropped out of commerce, you went into the co-op. Jim, yeah, it yeah. was Jim. Um, Jim Morris's stationery, um, Jim had a stationery shop at the front of his father's printing business and and the, the stationery shop became a kind of, uh, it was the hangout for everyone in bands. You would go down to Jim's to get your posters photocopied or, and that's where you kind of ended up kind of chatting. So I was, I was working with, Mike Lyons had a band called uh, Treehouse, a great a great band and I was kind of a friend of Mike's from school so you know the kind of you know I suppose I had dreams of being the manager so I didn't know what I was doing you know um, uh, but but that led me into Munster copying because I was getting you know posters printed or something and that's how I met Jim and Jim has always been this really passionate really enthusiastic character and you know within months I suppose he saw something in me because Jim published a fanzine called Chocoblock. I started writing for that, and then it was through that then I got involved in the co-op. And then what happened? So another one of my best friends, Kieran Hurley, was up here running the radio station. Kieran had had managed to get a job up here when um, when the station was called Car Campus Radio. Kieran got onto the co-op one day, and he wanted someone from the co-op to come up here and talk about what events the co-op was running and I got the short straw kind of to, to kind of come up here and just, but um, I can mm. remember being so nervous when I got up here, you know, because I'd never, you know, I'd yeah. never sat in front of a microphone before. I loved it. I got a real kind of, um, I don't know, I just totally drawn to it the minute I got, you know, the minute I came yeah. in. And then Kieran got me a start up here then kind of, and myself and John O'Leary um, were doing a radio show for a couple of years up here. Um, John used to run Freak Scene in Sir Henry's. So, yeah, that's kind of a big l roundabout way, really, Dave, in terms of how I got into all this stuff, you know. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, before the um, internet and before yeah. social media, bands definitely needed that infrastructure around them. Whereas now, I mean, they still do, obviously, of course. They still need promoters, still need venues and all that, but they can kind of promote themselves. But I, I think back then in the 90s, they, you needed someone like Jim Morris, Emmett, and all that to, to look after bands and... Do you know people like that weren't actually in bands? 
you know, yeah. that, that were a massive part of the scene, but like probably would have went unseen, you know, especially like people like Emmett, who was bringing bands in for years. And I always thought that that might be thankless work that like, you know, had Emmett ever got the credit that he deserves, you no, know what I mean? No, Just What do you think it is that draws people that aren't actually in the bands to the scene? Mm, that's a good question, Dave. I don't know. I think for me personally, I was always into music and records, but I wasn't musical. So I never learned to play a musical instrument. And um, I was fascinated by characters I'd read about um, behind the scenes, guys that ran record labels or, you know, I was always fascinated with the likes of, you know, Tony Wilson from Factory Records or, yeah. I don't know, Jeff Travis from Rough Trade, these kind of people. I, I, used to, I used to nearly enjoy interviews with them more than I enjoyed interviews with, their, with the artists on their labels, you know. I always wanted to kind of be somehow... In, involved in music and culture but I didn't really you know it took me years to kind of figure out what that would be for me you know and then and then I suppose there was a point here in UCC with Kieran um, on campus radio UCC 98.3 now and and I'd gone back to college to do a media course and I had to do a project for that and Kieran said why don't you do a radio documentary and I'd never made a radio documentary and with Kieran's help you know I made a documentary about um Finbar Donnelly, and that came really because I I was I was working with a um, a guy called Philip O'Connell, and Philip ran gigs. He had a company called F Frontline Promotions himself and Ali O'Reilly. Ali Ali was um, Sean's youngest son, and um, and Philip Philip had been the bass player in Non Attacks. They used to work out of Nancy Spain's. They'd get great bands up to Nancy Spain's and inevitably what used to happen afterwards is um, like it's hard to kind of explain it because you couldn't get hold of the records. So like, it, it was a very different time. If people talked about Nun Attacks, for instance, that meant nothing. It was just a name and, and a name of a band that people used to talk about in hushed tones. But you couldn't actually get the music unless mm. you knew someone who had the record kind yeah. of thing, you know. So... Um, Inevitably, what used to happen after all those gigs in Nancy Spain's is um, there'd be a lock-in and Philip would end up telling stories about when he was a teenager in Nun Attacks with um, Ricky Deneen and um, Fimber Donnelly and his brother, um, who, was, who was known as Smelly. You know, Philip was a real, like a fantastic storyteller and he'd have, you know, there used to maybe be, uh, you know, anything up to maybe 10 or 15 of us always there'd be some touring band and they'd be listening to Philip and these stories because and you you realised very quickly that this character he was talking about Fimber Donnelly was a, a larger than life character and the one thing I, I can remember was um, we put on Stereolab and Tortoise up in Nancy Spain's and when Stereolab came in for their um, for the sound check and you know I was a massive fan of, of, of Stereolab Tim Gain from Stereolab was really excited to meet Philip because Tim Gain had been a huge fan of Five Go Down to the Sea in London and he knew that Philip had been in the first band that Fimber Donnelly had been in. So, you know, being the impressionable lad that I was, kind of, I don't know, I was in my early 20s, I suppose, at the time, I was looking on and I was kind of thinking, what, like Tim Gain? is like Tim Gain knows who Fimber Donnelly is, you know, and I was trying to compute that. Yeah. And um, so when Kieran said to me, you know, make a documentary for your for your college project, I was like, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll make a documentary about Five Down to the Sea. That's really interesting. And that's how it came about. That's how you know? it, yeah, so that's how you got into the, basically because, like you said, the records weren't there and from, you know, Lockins and Nancy's, yeah, people yeah. telling stories about people like Fimbar Donnelly, you, you know, that's how your interest came about. Absolutely. And it was impossible to to get. And I can remember um, Jim O'Mahony, who used to run Comet Records on Washington Street, Jim X Comet, as he's known as. Jim gave me um, some, you know, um, a five go down to the sea, seven inch. It was like, there you go, Paul, take care of it kind of thing. And it was amazing because when I, it was, it was up here in UCC. Um, Kieran had a turntable in the old radio station and we were transferring the um, the vinyl to digital for the documentary. And myself and Kieran were just like gobsmacked listening to this because we'd never heard it. And we'd heard so many people over the years talk about this band. And of course, like Fimber had died in 1989. He drowned tragically in London. So there was also that aspect of... Um, 
all the people I'd interviewed about it were talking about Finbar in the past, like, you know, he was a friend of theirs. And it was obvious that he had left a huge impression on all these people because, you know, I suppose that can happen as well when someone dies young, you know. And um, But the music was just like, like nothing I'd ever heard. I couldn't believe that this was a band from Cork. Will we listen to some? Yeah, this is actually... This was never officially released by Five Go Down to the Sea. This was recorded, but not released. And Finbar Donnelly gave Jim O'Mahony a cassette of this when they recorded it. And um, when we put together a couple of years ago, myself and John Byrne um, put together a compilation for um, All City Records in Dublin, um, a Finbar Donnelly like, compilation record. And um, Jim found the cassette at home that um, Donnelly had given him with this. This was the only version of it. And uh, it was sent off to some studio to be transferred from cassette. So so that's what this is. This is the uh, the one and only Knock Nahini Shuffle by Five Go Down to the Sea. was five go down to the sea with Knocknahini Shuffle and that was picked by my guest today, Paul McDermott. It still sounds just completely, you know, unique. Just to get your thoughts on this, um, in the 80s and the 90s, Cork had a reputation for punching above its own weight and it was a place with a self-sufficient ecosystem from, say, the rest of the country and the bands that made any mark were seen as being quirky or maybe throwaway and sonically unique to Leaside. Can you remember the attitude or general status quo at the time in Cork and how that might have influenced bands to be quirky or give off an, an air of not taking it too seriously? Yeah, you know, I I hate that word quirky and I hate... Um, I used to find it very derivative when mm. people from outside Cork would just label Cork music as being quirky, you know. And then you kind of... You know, I've lived in Dublin long enough where I... I I like to think I, I can have a, a different kind of perspective on it, looking at the city and, and kind of music that comes from Cork. And then you kind of think of um, some of the great bands from Cork over the last couple of years kind of um, doing their own thing. You know, like I, I think straight away of a band like Pretty Happy, you know, who I think are an amazing band. And then I kind of go, I can see why people from outside Cork would kind of go, oh, there's a quirkiness to them or whatever it is. I don't think it's quirky per se. Um, I remember Mick Lynch from Stump told me years ago, this was mixed theory on it, right? And uh, it's brilliant. Um, I have this somewhere on a tape. It never made um, 
it never made any of the documentaries. But, but, but Mick's take on it was that there were two breweries in Cork back in the day, of course. There was the Murphy's Brewery at the bottom of Shandon and then, of course, you had like Beamish and Crawford at the bottom of Barrack Street. And Mick's theory was that, you know, there was, a, you know, the marshy city in the middle, you know, and, and on a really kind of a damp, horrible day, you'd get the clouds of fumes emanating from both of these breweries, one at the bottom of the north side, one at the bottom of the south side, and just this cloud of kind of fumes from these two two breweries would just permeate the whole city and had nowhere to kind of go. And that in that weird mix, it there was this kind of... Um, a, a craziness that like people used to go just a bit crazy on on kind of damp miserable days from the fumes of the breweries and in there somewhere Mick thought that possibly this in turn kind of influenced kind of the art that people were like making I don't know that was Mick's take on it it's a nice kind of lyrical take on it yeah I had a theory about it go for it <laughs> it's really like I much prefer Mick Lynch's theory now Mick Lynch's is good isn't it? <laughs> yeah it's romantic like. it's romantic Mine is mine is ridiculous, but it's um I was thinking, you know, it might have stemmed from punk and external bravado that some bands might in Cork needed to probably sustain themselves, you know, uh, in a small city yeah. like and um that quirky element was an internal collective symptom of low self esteem from living in a city that has always been chronically underfunded. And that's the second city thing as well. Yes, yeah, the second it? city thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, making irreverent colloquial music was a way of deflecting any attention away from the general belief that we'll never make it anyway, you know. Yeah. And, you know, you know, like notions, like, you know, that that, that good old self-sabotage that bands from Cork seem to always have, even if they did make it to London, you know. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think back in the day, we have to consider that, um, I think it's Sean O'Hagan said it in one of the in one of the documentaries. He talked about what it was like for him as a... He arrived in Cork as a as a teenager from um, from Luton in um, England. His parents were Irish, and they moved back to like Cork. Um, and he said Cork was a very strange place for him to arrive in. But he he also said it was a very isolated place. And if you do think of back in the day, you know it used to take. I was trying to remember how long it used to take to even like drive up to like Dublin before the motorway was there and you'd have to go through every one of the one of the towns. It took hours like. But just the isolation, the second city thing, of course, is uh, is is very important as well. You know, that idea of um, we're not Dublin and um, we feel isolated and we feel isolated from a national media. And of course, all of those things would have affected, I suppose. I think definitely that's why the Cork Music Resource Co-op was established back in the day. It was because we felt that uh, uh, an industry, a music industry, was just ignoring anything that was outside the pale, you know. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, how do we help, how do we help bands and artists um with information and getting gigs and so on and so forth, you know. It's so hard, like, it. it's probably, and I probably just, like, sound like an owl lad talking about this, but, you know, like, one of the things, believe it or not, that the music co-op offered was a telephone and fax service. I mean, that just probably sounds mental, but bands would come in to use the telephone and to use the fax machine, as in, I need to send a fax or I need to receive a fax, like, there was no mobile phones, like. The idea of just being able to offer a phone number that you could put on a demo tape or on a poster, like, looking for gigs, was extraordinary, you know? It's interesting, isn't it, that some of the most interesting music scenes can kind of happen outside a big a big metropolis like Dublin, you know? Like, mm. you think of Toasted Heretic coming from Galway or Engine Alley coming from Kilkenny, you know, these bands back in the 90s, and you go, you know, a band like Toasted Heretic or Engine Alley could never have happened in, in, in Dublin, you know? Mm. Or I thought it, um, one of the podcasts recently, I interviewed this band, uh, a band I love called um, Jet Plane Landing, mm. and they came out of a band from Derry called um, Cuckoo, back in the day, back in the 90s, you know. And talking to Andrew Ferris is the guy's name, really, really, really nice guy from this band, Jet Plane Landing. And I know it was one of the inspirations for Emmett Green when the Cork Music Resource Co-op set up. He had been up in Derry at a place called the Nerve Centre. And the Nerve Centre had previously been called the um, Northeast Musicians Collective in Derry. And of course, uh, the O'Neills from the Undertones, John O'Neill used to teach 
guitar to kids in this music co-op. And out of this then, eventually into the 90s, you had bands from Derry like Sheer, Stum, yeah. and, and Cuckoo all got record deals. And you kind of think that's just this amazing thing of a, a band giving something back to their community, yeah. you know. Let's take A-Tune. A-Tune. Um, this is uh, Boom Bip. And it is, um, it's Boom Bip with actually Nina Nastasia. This is from Boom Bip's uh, second album, Blue Eyed in the Red Room. And this is called The Matter of Our Discussion. was the matter of our discussion by Boom Bip and Nina Nastasia, picked by Paul McDermott. I wanted to ask you about doing radio docs. My question was, did you just do it for yourself, basically, uh, as a fan, or did you know there would be a real interest for documentaries on Finbar Donnelly and Stumpset? No, no. I mean, sure, no one, no one was interested back when I made that first documentary. It was done as, as a part fulfilment of um, a degree I was doing in media production out in Ballyfermot. I went back to, to college and did um, a radio course in Ballyfermot and then there was a top-up degree in media production and management um, through Thames Valley University over in London. And as part of that, you had to produce what they called a cultural artefact. So kind of um, in lieu of a a thesis, I suppose. It was like you did your, your your dissertation on some aspect of the media industries. I did mine on um, on community radio, actually. And then uh, you had to produce some artefact. So mine was um, a radio documentary. As I said, it it went back to those days in Nancy Spain's of, of, of listening to Philip and Ali talk about um, Fimber Donnelly and the Arcadia below opposite um, the train station. And they were talking about people like Elvira Butler and... and um, uh, all the bands that used to play in the Arcadia, Micro Disney and Mick Lynch and all of this. So I kind of took it upon myself to interview a load of people around that time. And I wanted to tell the story of what happened to um, the band Five Go Down to the Sea when they went over to London. As I said earlier, I was always interested in the likes of Tony Wilson or Alan McGee from Creation Records, for instance. He'd signed the Jason Mary chain and my Bloody Valentine, and of course by then he had discovered Oasis and Teenage Fan Club. But then kind of when you went back a bit further, he signed Five Go Down to the Sea, and you're kind of going, what? You know, this band from Cork were on Creation Records. And then, you know, when 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 Five Go Down to the Sea broke up, they became Beethoven, and the first band on Satanta Records was Beethoven. 
So you're kind of going, what? Like the label that later signed the Franks and um, Edwin Collins and all that, the Divine Comedy. Their first band was was Beethoven. So, you know, all of that I was fascinated in and I wanted to interview as many people as I could who were kind of connected, I suppose, to the story, you know. Mm. Myself and Connor O'Toole, a friend of mine who is also involved in the station here, myself and Connor got to go to London and interview Carl Coughlin and Sean O'Hagan and various other people. Connor came with me and, um, you know, because literally we didn't know what we were doing, you know, like sitting in Sean O'Hagan's back garden recording an interview with him and literally, you know, being nervous holding the microphone because to us, Sean, you know, and still is like this huge figure, you know, mm. and, but like everyone was so um, welcoming and um and, and helpful as well, actually, in it. And and the one thing I've always kind of, like the one thing that's always stayed stayed with me, you know, all these years is that when you undertake any project like that, like if you're really passionate about it and, and into it, and if you've done the background work, you know, people will trust you with a story when they know you're not messing around, you know, and that's yeah. what's always stayed stayed with me. So every, every documentary I've made since, I enter into it really kind of, I give it 100% and, um, you know, no one's ever refused an interview and everyone's been, you know, like like people people definitely appreciate it, I think, when they know that you're being honourable and, and that you've you've the work done. Because ultimately, it's a, it's a real privilege for someone to allow you to tell their story and um, there's something intimate about that and in that relationship, I think you have to be very honourable and you need to come to the table fully prepared and researched and you yeah. know like it, I think that's what like that's how the stories get get made ultimately then you know and I've been lucky that I mostly have told stories about Cork that's because I'm from Cork but it's also because I've I always kind of have this thing of um if I can get those stories out to a, a wider a wider community then that's good too you know I don't think we you know in in fact I can say definitely we would not have we would not have produced that Five Go Down to the Sea compilation album a couple of years ago if the Donnelly documentary had never been made 20 years ago. And Sean O'Hagan has also said that Micro Disney wouldn't have united if it wasn't for your documentary. Yeah, that was an amazing thing for Sean to say and I, I will take that from Sean mm. uh, but it's a huge honour for him to have said that, you know. I've been a fan of Micro Disney since town to town like when I was a teenager and for him to say that in the examiner was just extraordinary, you know. So just to go back, you got into documentaries because you needed to have, you needed to hand in a project. A in college project, yeah. You handed in this project for college, do you think that that would kind of change the direction of your professional career? No, but um, what had happened was um, when I was in college, my lecturer did a lot of kind of getting the students to stand up and, and kind of give the lecture. So we had this situation where you'd go in and research a topic and then you would stand up and deliver to the students, you know, like to the rest of my student colleagues. And um, I really got a buzz off that, kind of really enjoyed it. And as soon as I finished, I started applying for teaching jobs in Dublin. Luckily, I got uh, I got a job in Rathmines College, and I definitely think that um, having produced that 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 documentary about Five Go Down to the Sea, I think really helped me because actually I started in Liberties College, um, which is near St Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, and it was a girl went out on a maternity leave, and they wanted someone for six months, and as part of one of their media courses, they actually taught documentary production so it was quite specific you know it was like a six-month maternity leave teaching documentary production and they found it hard to fill because it was quite specific it was radio documentary I got the job because I had made a documentary you know so it was amazing and then and you know after that maternity leave was over I had enough teaching experience to be able to kind of go on and get the full-time job, you know. So it was amazing. I, I've told Ricky Deneen from Five Go Down to the Sea this, that, like, making that documentary was, like, not only did it probably raise awareness about the band and, and about Ricky and Donnelly's story and the fabulous music that they made, most importantly, but it also helped me get a job, you know. So <laughs> yeah. it was a win-win. Yeah, totally. Before you know? we get on to your teaching and radio career, well, let's hear another tune. 
Um, yeah, this is um, Kathy McCarthy. She's um, an American from um, Austin, Texas. And um, she knew Daniel Johnson when Daniel Johnson was kind of, um, you know, making tapes back in the day in um, Austin, Texas. She was in a band called Glass Eye. And when they broke up, she... Um, she made an album called Dead Dog's Eyeball, and it's the songs of Daniel Johnson. And as much as I love Daniel Johnson's own recordings, I just think her interpretations of his songs are just absolutely amazing. And um, this is her version of Daniel, of Daniel Johnson's Walking the Dog. was Walking the Cow by Cathy McCarthy and that was picked by my guest Paul McDermott. Paul, how does a fella who wrote fanzines and spun records in Isaac Bells and Henry's end up teaching radio production, journalism studies and media analysis? Well, when were those seeds yeah. planted, do you think? Well, I suppose they were, they were planted when I was folding the fanzines with Jim Marsh down in Munster Copying, you know, because I think it's all connected, really. Um, or when I was DJing with John O'Leary and handing out flyers and, you know, sticking up posters for the music co-op, all that stuff is um, is uh, informative, I suppose, really. And um, ultimately, as I said earlier, like when I was 18, I didn't know anything about the media. I didn't know anything about um, journalism degrees or anything like that, you know, but like it took me a couple of years. I was one of those typical guys that hadn't a clue what I wanted at 18. It, it, I suppose it was in my early 20s where, excuse me, I figured out, yeah, I could, you know, I could do something. wasn't sure what, but, you know, I want to do something within this world. I come from a family of national school teachers and, and uh, my mother and grandfather really wanted me to become a national school teacher and I had kind of no interest in that. And yet, you know, I ended up teaching. So, like, I suppose in a way it, it's, it's probably there as well in the blood, you know, mm. um, in a funny way. But um, I fell into it and I've been doing it for over 20, 20 years now or, or more. And um, I love it and it's brilliant. And um, it's, you know, I, I teach in Ratmines College in Dublin, which is um, its equivalent down here would be one of the ETB colleges. So that would be either, you know, um, Clush Stefan Neffa or um, St. John's Central College, I suppose. Um, so it's one of those um, f further education colleges in that area between leaving certain and higher education here in UCC, you know. I myself availed of that sector when I went back to college. Um, I did a I did a one year course out in Skullstefan Neffa, which then led me to kind of like continue on in education. So I was really thankful that there were courses like that for for people like me who who kind of I wasn't really suited to kind of um, the big bull lecture theatres with a couple of hundred people, you know, I needed, I, I, I suppose I needed a smaller class with direction, you know, if, if I was told you've a lecture blown the bull, you know, 
when I was 18, 19 and a bit immature, that just meant, well, sure, I'll skip that because, sure, no one's going to miss me. There's 300 people in the lecture theatre, you know. I just wasn't into it, you know. So um, I was thrilled when I did finally go back to college and find something I was into, you know. And then I was able to pull all those other experiences of being involved with the radio station here, uh, running gigs, writing fanzines. There was a point in my mid-twenties when I suddenly kind of looked at all that stuff and went, hang on, this is the media, you know, that I, I've, I've been involved, you know, doing these little things and, and I have these various experiences, you know, which I was able then to kind of use, use laterally. You know, so yeah. um, so that's it, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you're in Rat Mines now for Rat Mines for over twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And are you assistant principal, or yeah? Th- I mean, there'd be uh, within that sector, there'd be um, uh, what we call assistant principals one and two. So there's about yeah, there's about five of us are assistant principals in the college. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's just that sector. It's like that sector still kind of operates like kind of a secondary school in terms of its management. You know, so you'd yeah. have. Um, principal and a deputy and a number of assistant principals you know but um that's the day job but you're still involved in radio still involved in radio yeah yeah still i got involved in community radio um as soon as i moved up to dublin and i was involved in a radio station out in ballyfermot it was at, at the time it was called west dublin access radio and then i got involved in dublin city fm that at the time was called um Dublin City and Olivia, and and, uh, and, yeah, and that's yeah. one of the oldest community stations in the country, and um, it's um, it's still going strong. And I've been I've been involved with with that station for over twenty years. And um, you know, through through my um, through my work in in Rathmines College, I'd have seen loads of students over the years kind of even progress into um, using community radio as a kind of a first rung on a ladder to maybe a career in the media. So, you know, it's really important um, from that point of view. But I suppose it's more important, um, you know, in 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 small communities uh, to offer some type of alternative broadcasting for, you know, for, for a population. Um, and Dublin City FM really does that. I mean, as well as all of the various um, music genres programs in terms of you know playing 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 different niche genres that you don't hear um on mainstream public service or kind of commercial radio but on top of that there's an awful lot of programming um in different languages for communities in dublin you know there's lots of different immigrant communities in dublin so it it offers a real kind of um you know, like an obvious example would be there's a Polish program that obviously I don't listen to, but I know that members of the Polish community in Dublin do listen to it as a source of news and information about home and about yeah. what's happening within their community in Dublin. So that kind of thing, you know. Community radio is really vibrant, I think. It's why it's why stations like 98.3 FM are so important. When you look at the schedules and when you look beyond and some of the documentaries that have been broadcast up here over the years, you know, um, you just know they wouldn't have f- found an outlet in mainstream media, you know? Yeah. It's really important, I think. Yeah, I am conscious of the fact that we're, we're on UCC 98.3 yeah. and there might be people listening who haven't been been up here before and might have an idea. And what would you say to someone to get involved or what would you say to the general community to get involved in your local station? Community radio stations are always looking for volunteers. It's run on um, what's called a not-for-profit basis. Community radio has always been extremely kind of um, vibrant in places like Australia and Canada. And that's really, I suppose, a geography thing where you have um, dispersed populations, you know, like living. If, if, if you think of Australia, you know, small towns and villages in the middle of nowhere who kind of literally cannot get access back in the day to kind of, you know, big national radio stations. So kind of community radio kind of springs from that. Really vibrant across Europe. It's been in in Ireland now for, you know, nearly 30 years. And all of the stations, there's about 20 community radio stations, I think, around the country. And they all work on this uh, idea of kind of um, uh, run by the community, for the community, on, an, on a not-for-profit basis. Like, like, they always have a couple of jobs, you know, like you need someone to manage the station and things like that. But for the most part, it's run by volunteers. And 
from a programming standpoint, I suppose the idea really is that you're trying to do something. Like as I say to my own students, you know, I don't want you to pitch another radio program about the about the premiership to me. Like you know, there's enough of them, and you you won't be able to get those guests or players or pundits on your programme. So look around you and look around yeah. your town and city and see, you know, are there any communities in your in in your town that you think are underrepresented in the media? I always compare it to like, like, you know, when you walk into a supermarket and there's a notice board and you have a big massive notice board where you can pull off little phone numbers or whatever. And I think of community radio as like an audio version of that notice board and all walks of life are represented on that notice board. You know, you love um, the local Lions Club, the local Age Action Ireland Club, you love book clubs, you love all types of stuff happening. And a good community radio station, I think, should be, you know, kind of a oral equivalent of a community notice board. And that's how I kind of always think about it, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, here. That's it, I think, yeah. Okay, let's take a tune. This is uh, Julian Cope. I was thinking about this when I was putting a list of songs together. Like, straight away, I thought of Julian Cope. And I've been listening. There's been a, a Teardrop Explodes compilation came out there a few weeks ago. And I was I was listening back to it. And he's probably one of the few artists that I've actually stayed with all the way along, kind of bought everything, do you know? And I'd, I'd still buy a new Julian Cope album. This is his very first single when he went solo after the teardrops and it's called Sunshine Playroom. Okay, that was Julian Cope with Sunshine Playroom, picked yep. by my guest Paul McDermott. That still sounds brilliant. Paul, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast. Um, oh yeah, to hear no, to hear knows when. Great Irish albums revisited. Great Irish albums revisited. Yeah, you've done thirty episodes now. Yeah, it's thirty. Um, I'm taking a break for a few months. It's um, it's hard work. I started it over lockdown as a kind of um, you know, because over lockdown I couldn't. Um, I had to put a couple of documentary projects on um, on the back burner. You know. Um, actually, that documentary about Schlieve Lucre, the documentary about the Sultans of Ping, they had kind of been commissioned before COVID, but obviously I couldn't go, for instance, over to like London and meet Niall and Pat from from the Sultans over lockdown. And um, so I was kind of thinking, OK, what will I do? And then um, I just said, you know, I'll do a podcast. Um, and I kind of thought I'd kind of do a podcast that is kind of like little music documentaries, but rather than interviewing kind of a load of people, I'll I'll do kind of a real in-depth interview with one particular person. But um, there's an awful lot of work goes into it before you kind of even start the interview, do you know what I mean? And um, um, so I'm really happy with the reaction that it's gotten. People in, in um, I suppose, what you'd call Ireland's music community or, or, or whatever seem to really like it and have been sharing it and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which is amazing. Um, out of all your docs and your, your podcast episodes, is there any moments that really stand out for you? I interviewed Carl Coughlin a lot of times over the years for Campus Radio here, like like UCC 98.3, for my own radio show in Dublin, for various documentaries. But I suppose when I interviewed him for the, um, for the Micro Disney documentary, for me that was really memorable because I felt that he was willing to kind of um, talk about that period He'd have been in his 20s, really, for the whole stretch of micro-Disney. And I suppose in his 30s for the Fatima Mansions. So he hadn't really spoken about those micro-Disney years. And um, 
he was very open and he gave, um, you know, he talked about, you know, an awful lot of stuff that he'd never spoken about before. And um, that was, you know, for me, that was very memorable. Like, I'd have to say that um, when I made the first edit of, of um, Get That Monster Off the Stage, um, Ricky Deneen from Five Go Down to the Sea hadn't spoken to me at that stage, um, simply because I had tried reaching out to him, but like Ricky had hadn't really spoken about those those years, and of course, you have to remember that um, Ricky lost his best friend when Finbar Donnelly drowned, so it was a big deal. So to take Ricky Deneen back upstairs to the Phoenix, where well, where Five Go Down to the Sea had played some of their earliest gigs. And then get Ricky to talk about Fimber Donnelly and what happened in London when Ricky drowned, you know? Like, you're very honoured to be in those situations to to have to have people who are willing to kind of tell you those kind of really personal stories and, and then more importantly trust you with the story that you're not going to, you know, completely make a hames of the documentary, do you know? Mm, so yeah. I feel really honoured to have been able to kind of do those types of documentaries. The same with the um, the most recent one, the um, the Sultans. You know, Niall was brilliant. You know, talking about um, the band and what he does now, and you know, like mm. really great. You know, let's have a tune. Let's have a tune. Yeah, um, I was saying to you, Dave, it's really hard. You know, like being asked to pick a couple of songs for a program like this. And I said, after I sent you the email with the list of tunes, I was saying, God, if I'd waited an hour, I probably would have picked. You know a completely yeah. different list of tunes. This is one of my favourite albums of the last 20-something years. Um, the band were from Scotland. They were called, um, from Glasgow, I think, actually. They were called Life Without Buildings. They released just one record. I was thinking, wouldn't you, you know, it's the dream, isn't it? Do one album that is hailed as an absolute classic and then you just disappear, like, and that's the end of it. I think a few of the band members ended up as visual artists, I think. Sue, Sue Tompkins, the lead singer, I think, from Life Without Buildings, is a visual artist. This is um, PS Exclusive by Life Without Buildings from their brilliant album, Any Other City. That was PS Exclusive by Life Without Buildings, picked by Paul McDermott. From any other city, their, their one and only album from 2001. Paul, we've come to the end. Yeah, cheers, Dave. Thank you. Thanks a million for coming <laughs> on. Um, I, I was saying there, as, as, as that was playing, it's very weird to be on the other side of the microphone because, you know, usually I'm the one asking the question. So yeah. it's, it's a very weird feeling. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask you, have you anything in the pipeline? Any documentaries coming up? Any uh, yeah. podcasts? Yeah, always, always kind of plugging. Like hopefully, um, hopefully I'll be, I'll be able to announce a documentary um, in another couple of 
of months. It's it's hard, you know, the whole like funding mechanism for documentaries uh, in the country. Like you have to play your cards close to your chest on thing, you know, like you need all the dice to fall at the right time kind of thing. But um, so hopefully, yeah, uh, it'll probably be about Cork again. And um, the podcast, um, that'll be coming back in September. And um, I'm lining up kind of guests now for maybe another another run um, through the winter. I do songs to learn and sing on Wednesday nights on Dublin City FM. Um, that's online as well. That's Wednesdays at eleven, and that's great. I mean, I'm I'm doing that over twenty years, and that's great because um, it's it's for the most part new music, you know. I suppose that's the other thing about the podcast. I I always feel I don't know about you, Dave. I I feel these days there's so much going on mm. that. Things, things get forgotten about so quickly. And that's half the reason with the podcast. You know, I mentioned a band like Jet Plane, Jet Plane Landing. They get forgotten about so quickly because, like, our culture seems to just move so quickly forward. You yeah. know? When I was starting out here, um, I'm only here about six months, but yeah. one of my first music shows, I, I usually mostly have guests now, but um, I was doing music at the start. And so many albums have been forgotten about because they weren't hits. So I was able to go back to like, you know, 2004, you know, and like between 2004, 2010, there's amazing albums out there that like you never hear on national radio now or yeah. they've just been forgotten about. Um, so there is a lot, there's amazing music in this country that is there. You just have to go searching for it. And I think yeah. that's why your podcast is very important. I remember reading an interview with you on Irish Examiner and you were saying that you were, Mick Lynch from Stump used to work with him and you were pushing a PA around and you were thinking, why doesn't anybody talk to Mick? Like, why doesn't anybody think that this is important? These two guys from from London came over to Cork. Um, they were a Norman. Like, they ran a record label called Ensign Records. And Ensign had signed the Waterboys, uh, Sinead O'Connor, um, World Party. Yeah, you know, just like this, you know, incredible list of bands. Like, the guy had been involved with Tin Lizzy in the early days. He'd, he, he, he'd signed 10CC. Right. The Orange Fetishes did a kind of a showcase for them and a couple of other bands did a showcase for them up in Nancy Spain's. And then I, I, I was lucky enough, I got to kind of spend a few hours in their company and they were just saying to me, um, is Mick Lynch back in Cork? Where Could we get to meet Mick Lynch again? Because, of course, they had signed Stump back in the day. Mm. And I can remember having having dinner with these two guys who were like, like to me, these huge figures in the music industry and all they wanted to know was how was Mick Lynch? And as far as they were concerned, Mick was the one that, that kind of got away insofar as like yeah. they thought Stump should have been massive. And I, that really kind of, I, I don't know, but I, I, I remember going, Jesus, yeah, why, why? Like, yeah. you know, why am I pushing PA with Mick Lynch? Like, why don't more people know songs you know well keep up the good fight anyway Paul cheers, cheers Dave um, I suppose we'll have one more tune to play yeah. us out this is um, Michael Rother he was in the first version of Kraftwerk and, and he was in Noi and this is from one of his solo albums this is just a track I love called um, Sonnenrad and it's um, Michael Rother <laughs>
Tune in to Keeping Track every Thursday at midday on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is a music and interview program hosted by Dave Hackett. I play alternative music based on a theme and I interview people from all different backgrounds in our community to talk about what it is they do and to play the music that inspires them. Listen back to previous interviews and playlists on my SoundCloud page or on the station's podcast channel on Spotify. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Keeping track every Thursday from 12 to 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM. Now that was Keeping Track number 22. And if you go to paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find episode notes. You'll find further information about all the songs I chose for Dave. You'll also find links to Keeping Track's SoundCloud page. And Keeping Track is also available on UCC 98.3 FM's podcast stream. You'll find that on Spotify. I'm currently working on the next few episodes of the podcast and I should be back in a few weeks time with episode 31. The theme music is called Irish Rhapsody Redux. That's by Mark Healy and it's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. So until the next one, goodbye.